following Art Trap production is brought to you by the Gallifreyan Embassy and has been made possible by donations from listeners like you. Excellent. Doctor Who Podshop. Okay, well, let's do it. Now, I... You know, whatever it is, if it's valuable, send it to us. <laughs> For the best in all things Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who Podshock, the podcast all about Doctor Who, the longest-running science fiction television program with Louis Trapani. Hello. Ken Deep. Hello. James Norton. Hello. News. Fabulous. Reviews. Oh, no. And fan mail for James. Uh, 40,000. Doctor Who Podshock from the Gallifreyan Embassy and Outpost Gallifrey. You know, that guy James was really cool. Oh, yeah. We blew that. <laughs> I'm the Doctor. And who are you? And who are you? Outpost Gallifrey presents Doctor Who Podshock, episode 113. Hello, fellow ambassadors. This is Louis Trapani here, Trap 1. And um, this is episode, as I said, episode 113 of Doctor Who Podshock. It's sort of an, an eclectic episode. We're going to have various segments that were recorded at different times comprising this episode of Doctor Who Podshock, which means uh, both Ken Deep and James Norton will be joining us on this show later in, um, in, in, in obviously, in other segments in the show. So um, you have that to look forward to. It's a good show. We have an interview with um, Andrew Cartmel, who's a former script editor from Doctor Who and uh, all-around nice guy, uh, writer. We had a real good interview with him. Hopefully um, it's something that, that you'll enjoy as, as much as we enjoyed speaking with him. Uh, also on deck is a review of a audiobook, Sting of the Zygons. So the Zygons finally returned to Doctor Who um, in a um, in a book, an audiobook, and we'll be reviewing that. And then we have a interview with our West Coast correspondent. Also, he works as a, I believe, as an assistant director on the West Coast uh, in L.A. Hence, he's our West Coast correspondent, Joshua Lou Friedman. So, um, you know, and as I record this, there's breaking news to tell you about. A few weeks ago, we reported on the Gallifreyan Embassy website that Doctor Who uh, television episodes are now available on the Apple's iTunes store, you know, through, through iTunes in the U.S. We were very excited about that. What was available at that time was the 2005, 2006, and 2007 series of Doctor Who. Uh, at that point, there was nothing else to uh, previously or the current series, the 2008 series at that time was still being shown on the sci-fi channel. So it seemed doubtful that it would be available anyway. Uh, just breaking tonight is news that some of the classic episodes are now available as well. And these are uh, these episodes consist of mostly from um, John Pertwee's and um, Patrick Troughton's era. They um, at this time it's Carnival of Monsters, Spearhead from Space, the Crotons, the Croutons, <laughs> uh, the Three Doctors, Terror of the Autons, the Time Monster, the Claws of Axos, Planet of Spiders, and the Green Death. All classic episodes um, for your enjoyment. Once again, they're $1.99 each, or you can pick them up as sets. You know, um, what they're calling um, seasons, even though they're really, um, <laughs> they're just a collection, they're a collection of episodes that make up one story. 
So, um, but you can, it's just the terminology that that, that used there. So for example, uh, the three doctors, which are four episodes, you can buy for $7.96. That's $7.96 and they're $1.99 each individually. So um, it's great to have uh, these classic episodes available because um, the, the, the more exposure they have, the better that more people will find them. Also, those that are um, finding the series with the new series, the current um, television series that are that's being produced right now, they may want to go out and find these classic episodes, these gems. And, um, and maybe, you know, buying a whole DVD might be a, a bit much to outlay if they're not really familiar with the material. So here for a uh, for a dollar ninety nine, they could buy one episode, get a feel of it, see if they want to continue with it, buy the next episode, whatever. It's a bit more economical, and it's a great way to have um, your media because you have it um, in iTunes and you'll have it on your iPod. You can bring it with you, and you know, good stuff like that. Of course, we still encourage you if you want to get all the extras. <laughs> get the DVDs because they contain all those um, 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 exclusive material that was made just for the DVDs. So uh, there's still an advantage of getting the DVDs. But again, um, that's a bigger investment. And this is something that you kind of kind of um, for, for those that don't want to, you know, take that big bite, even though the DVDs aren't that expensive, but still a dollar ninety nine is a lot easier on the wallet or pocketbook than um, a $20 DVD. But anyway, we're going to go right into this episode. There's a lot to cover here, so uh, without any further ado, we'll be right back with more Doctor Who Podshock. You're listening to Doctor Who Podshock. This is Colin Baker. Doctor Who, The Audio Adventures. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. The first thing I remember is my mother's funeral. I would have been about four or five. It's kind of hard to judge when you ain't had no birthdays. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Hello? And so we started work, clambering down the oily steps to the Thames, each of us clutching a lamp, small points of light in the thick, swirling fog. Oi, Brewster. Tom! I said I'm not going... You give us your towel, boy. Tom! Save me! No! The Haunting of Thomas Brewster. Hello? Anyone home? Classic, Classic Doctors. doctors. Brand new adventures. Name of Thomas Brewster. You don't understand. It's vitally important we get to him tonight. This is Dave AC inviting you to CIA Podcast. Live! We're live! Now called Coldum in Audio. Samantha. Samantha. I sound like something out of a Terrorhawk. <laughs> Hello, Ian. Hello. Ian, I interviewed DG Italy. Hey. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Ready to go. Dr. Hume and Highlander. It was really good. But that is one of my other uh, little foibles. Could have done with some of those at the con. Yeah, and, uh, well, and of course, yeah. I have to say, this is Ian in the groove. This is Ramana, too. And Benjamin uh, Elliott, this week in Dr. Who, guy. The green-skinned Orion slave girl. Wow. <laughs> 
had a good thought, dude. It might have been even funny. Sending it to fanboy goo. Until you mentioned Wendy February. <laughs> oh, and Ian was like, ah, Say, let's get out of here. <laughs> he remembered my name. Uh. <laughs> with Jerry Doyle from Babylon 5. It's my other tagline. Doyle bought me a whiskey. This is... Bye, Bye, everyone. Bye. 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 Subscribe to CIA on iTunes. I catch us directly from TalkShoe. And we're back with Doctor Who Podshock, Ken Deep, Lewis Trepenny, sitting in with Andrew Cartmel, script editor of the Sylvester McCoy era and all-around good guy, famous, world-famous author now, and, and bringing back to life Blake Seven, which has got to be extraordinary. I'm, I'm, I'm a Blake Seven guy, so... Mm-hmm. We, should, we should also add that I'm in the middle of eating a sandwich. There's this strange <laughs> kind of Japanese horror movie kind of noises, monster movie noises going on. <laughs> Godzilla eats Tokyo kind of noise. This is all down to my sandwich here. Sorry about that, guys. Well, we're um, fitting in as much time as we can with the, the various guests who are extremely busy, and then Lewis and I have been running around all over the place at Gallifrey 19. And thanks, by the way, for coming. This is this whole weekend has really been a tribute to to the era that that you've been largely responsible for as as script editor. Well, you know, two people have said to me something that I never thought before, which is that somehow, even though there was that huge hiatus, that maybe we gave this kind of push, this this, this impetus that eventually, at a long distance, resulted in, in the new series. And, that, you know, that, that if we hadn't done what we did the way we did it, maybe it never would have come to fruition again. And I hadn't thought about that, and, and uh, I'd love to believe that. And, uh, you know, I hope that there's a, a great deal of truth in that. That's really cool. It seemed, towards the end, as the outside forces seemed to be conspiring to bring Doctor Who to an end, that the creative team were almost handcuffed in what they could do. Is that is that a fair thing to say? Um, no, because we had an amazingly free hand, but at a certain point they just cut off our air supply, if I can put it like that. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about the forces that conspired. Well, a moment ago I was saying that, that there was this kind of distant impetus that, that, that we gave a really good final push to the show, and hopefully that, that transmitted itself over the course of decades into the new series. Well, in a kind of vaguely similar way, I think what had happened was um, in the era immediately preceding the, the Sylvester McCoy era, I think the show, had, for various reasons, kind of in a negative synergy way, sort of reached a new low. And I'm, I'm referring to things like, not Colin Baker, but the, the character they'd created for him, who's slightly... You see, the thing about Colin, the Colin Baker Doctor was, apart from the costume, which I, I can never say how many times I hate that costume. <laughs> it's just, it's a really bad idea, that costume. And, Brings the show down. But you had, you had his costume, you had his persona, which wasn't the nicest of guys. Uh, you, you had Bonnie Langford and, and her character, who, for all the high hopes they had of making her a technologist and a scientist, basically ended up as, as your basic screamer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you had that combination, uh, and you had some scripts which I, I would have done very differently, were not done at all. And the trial of the timeline, I thought, was a you often get this notion that if you do a big linked story and a big story arc, that it's going to be great because everything's tied together. I usually those things can be the exact opposite of that. I mean, the exception is Twenty Four, the thriller series with Keeper Sutherland. But but by and large, those things are just turns out to be an albatross around the neck of everybody, especially with something like a Trial of Time Lord. Because although one thinks of, of um, courtroom dramas as being absolutely riveting, this didn't this didn't function properly on that level. So. You'd really reached a nadir on the series. It was it was the lowest point, 
And I think what had happened is various people had made their minds up in the power structure of the BBC that the Doctor Who was a spent force, and they, they brought it back against their will. And what I think they didn't do is, I, I don't think they gave the new series, uh, by the new series, I mean the Sylvester McCoy era, I don't think they gave it a fair chance, and perhaps they just didn't look at it basically. I think they, they had a, a list of things to do, one of which was to cancel the series, and they just waited until an opportune moment when they could, without taking account of the fact that, God bless us, you know, the, the series was resurgent, and things were going well again. And I, you, you were asking, how, whether I felt there was interference. There wasn't interference at all, and, and you mentioned the, the forces conspiring. I think what had happened, as I say, is that, that, that the show had gone up a blind alley and people had made the decisions years earlier about what was going to happen. That's, I mean, nobody knows for sure why these things are done, and probably there's no single reason in the same way that there's, there's, you can't isolate why you have a rainstorm and why the weather is yeah. like it is. It's a whole bunch of elements coming together. But I, think, I do think it was a grave shame what happened. And, and I suspect one reason, I mean, I watched Vengeance on Varos, which in many ways is a very hard-hitting, powerful science fiction story, but it's also got a nasty element of sadism about it. Mm -hmm. And I think, I, I can't prove this, but I think that might have been the turning point for people like Michael Grade, if they tuned into that, they all, this isn't Doctor Who. And in a way it wasn't, it was, if it had been some, some other science fiction series, mm -hmm. I think it would have been a powerful story. But as Do Doctor Who's always got to be compatible, it's not for children, but compatible with, uh, with Jordan. including Jordan. Yeah. And to me, the, the worst important personal moment for me, I mean, I watched a, a lot of stuff when I was writing a book about the history of the series, which is called Through Time. Put a little plug for that, it's, it's the best. Yeah. Actually, it's not a great book for fans because they already know all that. It's, it's for people who don't know anything about the show. Good Some introduction from the, from the new, yeah. Yeah. following it from the new series, yeah. looking back. Yeah, and, and um, it's a personal viewpoint from somebody who worked on the show. But in the course of writing that book, I watched a lot of episodes. And when I watched Benjamin's Little Virus, um, there's a, a bit where the, the uh, the guy falls in the acid bath, and the doctor has this kind of Schwarzenegger could be just something like, mm -hmm. oh, don't mind if I don't join you, or something like that. And this person's, you know, being horribly killed. Yeah. And that would work for some characters, but when you combine that with, with a rather unsympathetic uh, sixth doctor and, and the general kind of uh, darkness and, and often the decline of the series, I think I could imagine somebody watching that and saying, right, we've had enough doctor, which is a real shame because after that it picked up again. Yeah, and it seemed almost like that Colin faced the was the scapegoat in that. I just blame the doctor, you know, as opposed to many elements being part of that. You know, that he he easily could have turned up the charm and turned down certain other elements. And and it was there was a specific desire. I mean, they didn't do that inadvertently. They thought, we, we shall, we'll make him this disagreeable fellow. But you know what? If you want a disagreeable fellow and kind of a sarcastic or, or a nasty, snubbing guy, he's kind of got to be a little guy. You know what I mean? He's got to like um, mm -hmm. he's got to be Groucho Marx. If you have a great big, tough, uh, big, um, powerfully built, handsome leading man doing that, it comes across completely different. Well, going back to Hartnell, Hartnell was a bit crotchety and, 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 yeah. tough and rough edged, and but his demeanor, his figure was that well, he was a, a frail old man. Yeah, exactly, he was a frail little guy, and so that works perfectly. It's, you, you put it on the shoulders of a great big strapping leading man type, completely different chemistry, yeah. and, and I think uh, uh, an injurious one, injurious one. Mm. You're uh, in the middle now of going from seasons 24, 25, 26, and, and, and these things are, are all happening. You're, you're doing, it seems like, almost an uphill battle at, at certain times, though. Wouldn't you, what, don't you think, it, I mean, as far as the, the, the money goes up, the, the stories are coming in, and, and your writers, your writing team is, is spectacular. They're coming up with imaginative ideas, um, and, and something's larger than life. 
and then it almost seems like, well, how are we going to pull this off? Was it more of a challenge to try and say, well, we get we have ambitious scripts here, and if we only had limited resources, yes, right, a limited resource base and ambitious scripts. But the thing I always tried to do was, and I've said this before, is, is when you got the monsters. Okay, number one, you try not to do deep space stories, you do earth-based stories, right? I mean, there's, there's a good reason for that in terms of atmosphere. You've got a realistic atmosphere to mm -hmm. contrast with sure. the foreground of the, the uh, supernatural science fiction fantasy elements. But also, it's cheaper, it's so much cheaper. And the, similarly, when you've got your monster, what you really want is your monsters basically looks like a human being, but a bit off. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always argued for that. And uh, the one time that we, we disastrously departed from that was the Cheetah people in survival. But you see, I pushed really hard, and in the scripts, we pushed really hard for what was basically supposed to be uh, fangs, claws, eyes. That's all you really need to do, and perhaps to color people's faces a bit, given whiskers, maybe. But um, John very, I mean, John quite explicitly rejected that because he said, look, you've got to have proper monsters, and we've done some other stories, like in, in uh, Ian's Curse of Fenric, I'd argued for that, for the vampires to be like that again. And John always resisted, he wanted full-blown monsters, which is great if you have the resources to do it, but we didn't. Well, actually, sometimes we did. It was a lottery. It's not just to do with money, it's to do with the skill of the people, the designers you got. But it was a lottery who would work on the show, and whether you'd get somebody who's sympathetic and talented and gifted in that area. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about money, it's, it's in the case of the BBC in those days, it was also about luck. And the fact is, we didn't have the money and we often didn't have the luck to get somebody to pull up a completely functional, full, fully designed monster. So they often looked terrible. <laughs> so sometimes you would get a designer that might be better suited for a different story? Yeah, or you'd get somebody who would be absolutely brilliant at social realism, but wasn't good at and didn't want to know about science fiction. Mm. Uh, because in those days, uh, the BBC used to have all these people on staff, and they would rotate them. And they wouldn't always rotate them to the job that they wanted. It, you know, they, it was yeah. the luck of the draw, to an extent. And that, that, that was a problem. And, and for instance, on survival, um, what you had, I was talking to Lizzie McGowan, who was working in the special effects department at the time. Uh, I think they were called visual effects. There was a distinction between visual and video effects, which is different between video, uh, uh, physical effects and ones that are done on tape. Anyway, he was involved with prosthetics and monster building, model building, all the rest of it. And they wanted to do the Cheetah people. But it was, there was a little power play, and the, the costume designer, you know, these things fall on the borderline of costumes, makeup, mm -hmm. and special effects. So if you have somebody who's a forceful personality or really wants the gig, they can claw it into their domain. And what happened, uh, for whatever reason, was that the costume designer insisted on and got, got the cheetah people. And then what they did with it wasn't right. So, mm -hmm. so even if we had to go down the route of making them look more like um, uh, furry animals, had it fallen into the do domain of the special effects guys, they might have done a creditable job. They might not have. I mean, we're, right, we're just guessing been, yeah, now. Yeah. But, but I think we'd have had a better shot of it. And, and I, I want to stress that the costume designer on that show was great, but didn't wasn't the right person to do the cheetah people. They just didn't know what they because they ended up looking cute and cuddly. Yeah, that's uh, we've seen it again uh, done differently in the new series with um, new, yeah with New Earth. It's totally doable. Although it's easy to say that now because we're almost 20 years on, right? right? Yeah. And things have moved on a great deal. And the budget's increased a lot. All of those things have improved, but the crucial element in all of that is having somebody who's sympathetic to it and is talented 
and it was going to, you could do that even on a really low budget. If you had the right, passion. Yeah, yeah, okay. the right, the, you had the right people who were passionate about it. And so it's, it was just, just a shame. Are you following the new series on it? You know what, um, I thought the third series it really clicked for me. And, and right from the start, as soon as they introduced Martha Jones and mm -hmm. Prima Agumon, right, yeah. I, I loved Billy Piper. I thought it was a real coup getting Billy Piper as Rose. And as soon as I heard that they're cast, I knew that they were, right then I began to have a good feeling about the series. But you see, it was brilliant to go from, from Rose to somebody who's, you know, perhaps even better. I hesitate to say it, but you know, I think she was even better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the story that introduced her where they dragged the hospital to the moon is fantastic stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, again, I mean, that was very clever, Russell, because I'm saying that you've got to bring the alien elements to Earth. But what he did is he took Earth elements into an alien environment. That was a damn clever idea. And then we had gridlock. And, you know, mm -hmm. right then I thought it was really firing on all cylinders. And I think the third series was surpassingly good. And, and um, I'm hoping it just keeps on getting better. But yeah, it's, it's really grown on me. I, that's almost a standard question for us to ask someone from the classic series to say, you know, what do you think of the new series? And everybody, of course, of course, everybody has to be diplomatic about it. But, but the, the, if you'd asked me each year as it's going along, the answer would have been you know, increased enthusiasm to the point now that you know I thought it was terrific. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then and, and although, like you say, people tend to want to be diplomatic about it, they're, they're, you can tell when someone is, you know, maybe avoiding the question when someone really genuinely feels that that the show is, is something great and that it makes them look good for being part of something yeah, that's, exactly. that's so Red historic. Right. You Absolutely. Know? Recently, you re-envisioned Blake 7 for audio, uh, which is now released that people can buy. Uh, was first uh, introduced on, on sci-fi.com and uh, in the UK and then now available for people to purchase. Uh, were you a Blake 7 fan at the time? And, and what, what makes you come out in- It's a very interesting story, uh, the genesis of that. First of all, I've got to stress that um, although I've been involved with the team developing it, I can't say that I've really had any major impact. Well, actually, I, I, in, in one sense, I was absolutely uh, had a crucial and formative impact because what I did was I introduced Andrew Mark Sewell, who's the producer, mm -hmm. who's developing like with um, I introduced him to Ben Aronovich. So, in the sense that I, I, I um, godfathered that handshake. I'm totally the man, but beyond my, that, my involvement was uh, was was not huge. Um, uh, just to to give a better idea of how I was involved with Blake Seven, um, there's kind of a three pronged strategy at the time that I, I was talking to Andrew about, which was to uh, try and develop the live action series, a new live action series, to develop um, a, a, a stream of audio adventures, and to do an animated series too. So they were trying, you know, every possible. Route. Which one? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. to see which would work. Some and throwing some just suggestions out and seeing. Yeah, and so uh, my main influence on on the whole project was, as I say, to bring Ben into it. And Ben was completely formative because he uh, he basically invented, you know, in discussion with Andrew Sewell, he invented the universe in, in which it operates, right down to the spaceships and stuff. I mean, Ben's very good at that kind of stuff, world building. Plus, he decided what to do with the characters, and anyway, Ben did a fantastic job. What I did was uh, I wrote a script for the animated series, mm -hmm. and uh, that script also was quite influential. Right, right down to the, the fact I introduced this uh, this minor character called Doctor Span, and everybody felt, fell in love with Doctor Span, and there's going to be a Doctor Span story, and, and that, none of that has happened yet. But in a way, that was that was kind of cool. And um, I, I don't know how familiar your uh, listeners are with. Lake Seven, but Ben did this great thing when he took a character called Travis. Mm -hmm. It was kind of an injured guy with with, with a, like a slightly deformed. He's kind of battle scarred, like like a like a Wellington, a guy who'd been injured in, in, the, yeah. in the war, and he was a mess physically because of it. 
and, and, and physically and emotionally and spiritually, he had been embittered because of this. And, but this was all backstory. So Ben had this great idea, you know, you start with this guy as, as a clean-cut cadet officer type, you know, and um, space cadet, and, and uh, then we see what happens to him. So I wrote the story in which that happened, and that was a really great story. And um, just to be completely immodest, um, I think that they were so pleased with that, that that it helped bring the character into focus. And a lot of the elements, like they just, they said, you know, write the story in which this happens. And I put in a lot of details to it, like I ramped it up because I thought he should just be getting engaged. Because what happens is he ends up hideously deformed, so I thought it'd be great if he's, you know, deeply in love, just about to be, be married and all this Make stuff. Make that bitterness Just to stronger. increase it all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I did all these things and I, and I, I hope and believe that a lot of that is, uh, those ideas are going to come back in to the way Travis is treating live action series because uh, although that animation script's on hold, I'm really proud of it and I think that it, it really hit the nail on the head. So I think Andrew and Ben were both quite quite pleased with it and I'm hoping that some of those elements like that, like throwing the, the pebble in the pond, I'm hoping those ripples will, will <laughs> propagate into, yeah. into the, 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 the uh, series as it's developing now. So that kind of gives a pretty clear although slightly self-serving idea of, of my influence on the show, which in a way is very minor, but, but hopefully some of the small things I did might, might have a far-reaching influence in the same way that, that introducing Ben to Andrew did. Yeah, and you actually, during your era on Doctor Who, you, you introduced a lot of new writers to the show. A lot of, there was a lot of fresh blood under your, your administration, shall we say, uh, which, which did vi revitalize a lot of the, um, the way the storytelling was done. Uh, it was a very change, uh, a change from your your predecessor had certain ideas of what he wanted to do. Your thing was a, in a, almost in an entirely different direction. And the, the involvement as far as uh, over the course of three years, it, some writers come in, they, they're, they're, they have some maybe some preconceived notions as to what Doctor Who is going to be like. How do you ease them into that? How do you make them welcome to a show like Doctor Who? That's interesting. Um on the matter of preconceived notions, the people who would have the most rigidly preconceived notions would tend to be fans of the show. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't employ any fans of the show. Actually, the truth is I didn't knowingly employ any fans mm -hmm. of the show. It turned out that one of the guys I hired turned out to be a, a major fan. But that was cool, because I, I hired him. He, he kind of didn't approach it from that direction, and I only found out later on. So that was really nice, actually. Kept it, he kept it under wraps. That was Mark and Platt. He, no, he, was very, yeah. he was very classy about it, because he was working in the BBC at the time, so he could have sent me the script in the internal post, like just handed through the office messenger, which a lot of people would have done. But he didn't do that. He had it just, he mailed it to me. And again, that was a classy gesture, because people would have done that, often used, you know, they would have assumed that being in the organization would have helped them a lot. Right. And that actually would probably tend to count against people in the same way he didn't let me know that he's a huge Doctor Who fan. So he was purely coming in as an outsider on his own merits. And that's how he got, got involved. Mm -hmm. So that was beautiful. But so um, they didn't, Mark would have come with some preconceived notions, but they, they turned to be, be fine. Most other writers, they only have preconceived notions to the extent that they might have thought, they might not have understood science fiction or been comfortable with it, or might have thought science fiction was rubbish. They might have thought Doctor Who was rubbish. None of which are necessarily fatal things. As long as you can show them that, that science fiction is not rubbish and Doctor Who is definitely not rubbish, as long as you you can uh, convince them of your sincerity and 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 your your attempt to do something good, you know, something of quality. And, and if their storytelling is is what you're interested in, as opposed to what kind of you know device you can create, yeah, yeah, or exactly, monster exactly. you can create, and, and um, sometimes. I tried to get, give people an orientation to science fiction. I'd send them away to read Robert Heinlein or Ray Bradbury mm -hmm. or some of the Halo Jones comics, which were written by Alan Moore. 
and sure. John, I think, by Ian Gibson. But they were those were all great because um, they were kind of space opera, but really intelligently done. So I thought that that helped dial some people in. And like one writer, uh, I gave him the Halo Jones books, and he went off, and he came back with his storyline, and um, it, the storylines were all wrong, wrong, wrong. And he got really angry about it. He said, but you know, I, I took some of the characters out of the Halo Jones, I put them in that. And I thought, well, that's not what I wanted you to do. I didn't want you to take any of the detail. Mm-hmm. What I wanted you to, to absorb, it sounds a bit pretentious, but I wanted you to absorb the spirit and the atmosphere and the right. quality of it and come back with something. With your own thing. Tuned to its own level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this guy got was really, really, well, he really needed the gig, which I really sympathize with for a writer because we've all been there. But I couldn't give him the gig if he wasn't, gonna, if he wasn't on the right wavelength. Right. So what he did is he reached in his pocket and he took out one, one of these um, TARDIS, like a little metal die-cast toy. And it was either Matchbox or Corgi toys that used to mm-hmm. do these. And he said, okay, do you want to buy this? I, I, and he, he named a price, which I thought was outrageously high at the time. But I paid it without, without uh, out a murmur because I, you know, I, felt, felt, I, you know, I felt really sympathetic towards the poor guy. And actually, I really like that TARDIS. It's sitting at home on top of all my <laughs> record cases right now. And it looks great. So uh, that was, that was uh, a story of a writer who didn't, who wasn't right for the show at that time, mostly because I didn't succeed as a script editor in, in tuning his, his, his talent into what we needed. Into what you need. I'm sorry, I just wanted to kind of mention the last few story, the last couple of seasons of Doctor Who, that it seems like the stories were building upon something, and uh, it seemed like there was a story arc that was slowly building as far as the Doctor's character. Uh, is this what is considered the master plan? <laughs> well, you see, it's really amusing because I never had anything called the Cardinal Master Plan, and uh, it, it, it was a, it's a name that was applied uh, after the fact to the, the things that I did. So there never really was a master plan, but to the extent that I understand it, the master plan, here I am, the architect of the master plan, <laughs> trying to guess what it means. Um, to, the, to the extent that I understand it, it is an attempt to invigorate the show by returning the Doctor to his mysterious, powerful roots. Mm. But some people carry it further to, to think that there actually was a specific detailed plan mm. about what the doctor would you know turn out to be i just wanted him to be this really powerful being uh, who was not just a time lord amongst other time lords, but was actually a member of the founding fathers or the founding committee and and you know it was this big powerful entity but i really wasn't really i gotta be honest i wasn't interested in dotting dotting the i's and crossing the t's uh and i kind of left that to my 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 expert cadre of writers which in this case was ben and man mark to kind of work out any Gallifreyan trappings, because because what I wanted was just to have this character who's no longer um, a victim or a chump. I've said this before, but he he'd reached the point where he was just he was just a whipping boy in the show. I mean, not 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 during my tenure, mm-hmm. but often in, in the, some of the earlier Puppet. seasons. Yeah. yeah, right. And he, you'd have these exciting adventures in which you're just running around a victim of circumstance. Even in um, there's even a, a Robert Holmes story. Um, the, the one with the, it was like, it's based on the Phantom of the Opera and there's a dragon in it. Do you know, it's, it's like underground. Talons? No, 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 it was a, oh, wow. it was a Peter Davison story. Um, uh, um, Caves of Andrew's Iron. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You see, which is a very well-written science fiction adventure from Robert Holmes, but basically, if you look at the Doctor's role in that, he's just a victim of events. And I wanted him to be um, the guy who's, yeah, exactly, yeah. the guy who, who's, it's a classic thing with screenwriting, the, 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 the US screenwriting model is that your character has to cause things to happen and not be a victim of events. So it was without knowing that, I was already applying that kind of thinking to it. So the master plan, the essence of the master plan was to put the doctor back at the center to reinvest him with, with power and mystery. 
But um, if people think that there was a more detailed master plan, I don't want to disappoint them, but, but we did, really hadn't worked out. It was, it was more like a, a general approach to things. A, a, a focus, more of a, a streamlined focus yeah. back on the doctor. Yeah. Well, we're out of time, yeah, unfortunately. We all have panels to do. One just quick question. Please, you mentioned, yeah. uh, you, mentioned um, you mentioned Alan Moore um, as some of the influences. There was a rumor in the late 80s, and I'm going way back Sure. To old rumor mills that there, there was a possibility he may have written a, a, either a treatment or a story for oh, the show. No, what happened with Alan was um, it's great. I, I had just left my job as a computer programmer to join Doctor Who, and uh, I knew that the fellow guy who worked at the firm in Cambridge with me uh, at knew Alan Moore because he was a member of a science fiction society who, who'd somehow had Alan as a guest or something. So I got in touch with this dude to try and get Alan's details because I wanted I. I loved his work and I wanted to see if he could work on the show. And uh, so I got in touch with this guy and he said, oh, I better check with Alan first before I release it. Then I bumped into Alan Moore, who's a very distinctive looking figure with long hair and a beard, quite, quite an impressive figure, at a comic, uh, Mart, I used to get mm -hmm. a comic guy. So I came up to him and I said, oh, listen, hi, I was you know, would you like to write for Doctor Who? He said, oh, I don't write for Marvel anymore. I said, dude, not the comic, <laughs> you know, the TV show. So he, he gave me his phone number and I phoned him up and I talked to him about it and he, you know, we never. The reason, the main reason, he never did anything for the show is he was too damn busy because everything was just hitting at that time. Right, he had a lot of things. Yeah, like I mean, we were post Watchmen now, and and um, uh, for Vendetta had been reissued in its fullest form, and Swamp Thing, and everything was coming out round about this time. Mm -hmm. So he, he he was overloaded in his comic commitments, let alone writing for television. Now that sounds like a brush off, but it wasn't a brush off because when I rang, we talked for about an hour, and he said the thing. I'll never forget his wonderful turn of phrase. He said, I. He loved the kind of early Hartnell Trout and kind of stuff, the mysterious. He said, what, what I really love, he said in this wonderful accent, he said, is that poking into dark nursery corners. I thought it was a great oh, idea, yeah. just a great way of putting it. So if you'd had the time, actually, he, it wasn't just a matter of time. If you'd caught him a little, just a little bit earlier in his career, because he was kind of too big, yeah. and uh, too big not in the sense of money or anything like that, but probably in the sense of autonomy, writing for comics, he would be the god of his world. And on television, it might not have agreed with him. But I, I just missed the boat on Alan Moore. So there was never anything on paper. He didn't ever submit any ideas. But we just had that chat. I was a really great guy, great creative of mine. It was good to talk to him. But it was heartbreaking not to have been in a position where he, he could have viably been, been groomed for the show. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see what he would bring. Yeah, to I mean, the show. but sometimes I think maybe it's a blessing because if he'd done a really great script and we'd screwed it up royally <laughs> just for reasons of design or okay. an unsympathetic director or whatever, and he'd had a bad experience. The last thing I would have wanted to, is to give Alan, who bad I think is a great writer. I, I wouldn't want, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't want to have ended up give it, giving giving him a disappointment and making him unhappy or in any way kind of, yeah, having a falling out with him. So maybe in a sense it was a blessing in disguise. Well, again, thank we want so to much. say thanks so much yeah, for spending great, a little guys. bit of time with us and, and you know, during your sandwich time oh, here. It's true. Any strange little noises, it's a plastic <laughs> water bottle I've been picking up. So if you hear that kind of noise, that's what that was all about. Thank you so much. Thank guys. you. Thank you thank again. You. I'm Andrew Carpell, and you are listening to Doctor Who Podshot.
there are 604,800 seconds in a week. A Doctor Who episode fills up only 3,000 seconds of your week. What to do with the remaining time on your hands? Sure, you can listen to Podshock, but even that only eats up another 5,400 seconds. Looking to fill that void of time while waiting for your next Doctor Who fix? Why not try something completely different and listen to The Magic Sock, a podcast in which I discuss the Magic the Gathering fantasy collectible card game. On The Magic Sock, you'll hear me discuss deck building techniques, individual card strategies, all the new sets, and my 13-year love of the game. Visit www.themagicsock.com to hear more. And remember, even a super-sized two-hour Podshock episode is only 7,200 seconds long, leaving you over 597,600 seconds left in your week. That leaves you plenty of time to listen to another podcast. Why not then listen to The Magic Sock? Who Podshock. Uh, Ken had to uh, leave for a bit, and maybe he'll be back later on in the show. But right now, James is still with us, and we're going to... Uh, we've had um, the opportunity to review a audiobook of uh, Stephen Cole's Sting of the Zygons, and this is read by Reggie Yates. James, you were just mentioning that Reggie Yates, um, and I'm looking at the back of the CD here, and, and I believe you are correct because now I recognize his face. He played um, Martha Jones's brother, didn't he? In this, yeah, I, I can't remember the, the name of the, um, the character. Yeah, but I know that he definitely listening to the to he plays, the audio. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump on you, but I'm just reading on the back of the of the case here. He plays Leo Jones in the series. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's Martha Jones's um, um, brother there. So um, this story, as the name implies, reintroduces the Zygons, which first made their appearance in Doctor Who history during the, uh, the early Tom Baker years, when uh, uh, Tom Baker and um, Sarah Jane Smith, well, not, I should say Doctor Number Four and Sarah Jane Smith, um, encountered the Zygons and, um, with an incident with the Loch Ness Monster. It's a uh, one of our, very, it's one of the most popular stories, um, at least one of the popular aliens. A lot of people lately, when uh, in our feedback section, when we're speaking of um, what you know, past villain or adversary or monster to bring back to the series, a lot of people always bring up the Zygons, and and if you, they do have an iconic look to them. You know, mm. they did a, a great job. You know, back in the seventies, just. Um, getting the, that alien look, you know, because, you know, obviously the humans in there, but they really did a nice job with the costumes. And um, so this is um, a, um, a two hour, um, two disc CD. It's an abridged version uh, audiobook by BBC audio and it's sting of the Zygons. We both had an opportunity opportunity to listen to it. And, mm-hmm. um, I'll just kind of rattle off some of my comments at first, and I'll, I'll hand it off to James. And sure. My, I, I first have to preface this saying that I think I'm a bit 
spoiled by by Big Finish and 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 the Radio Seven uh, drama series with Paul McGann uh, that that have been running this past year, um, being that they have several actors uh, on board and it's it's an audio drama with the sound effects and it's it's a whole big production. If you ever listen to radio dramas, that's what they are. This is not that. So it's a audio book and it's read to you. Um, the, the Reggie Yates, who's the narrator of this audiobook, you know, will attempt to, you know, realize the characters by uh, doing different voices, but there's no sound effects, there's no different actors, it's, 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 you know, read by one person, and basically, I mean, I guess that's what audiobooks are all about. If you ever listen to audiobooks, basically, I guess that's it. Some audiobooks will, will um, include effects, sounds, and whatnot, but this one does not, so... Um, I felt like a little bit like it was um, bedtime story time, you know, where you're just getting, um, you know, someone reading out loud a book to you and granted doing the characters and such, but it's a, a little monotone in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, the It's based on, a, you know, the book by Stephen Cole. So I have to say the the characters, the, the writing, you know, that's being read is, um, I think, spot on. I think that the, the like the the Zygon spoke the way I remember the Zygon speaking in the That's dialogue. very true, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that he, um, Stephen Cole captured the whole Zygon experience, and um, and I think pa- Stephen Cole painted that picture or atmosphere of, of, the, of you know, Terror of the Zygons, of the, the original story that this is, you know, obviously a sequel to. Uh, this adventure is with the Tenth Doctor, and it has Martha Jones as, you know, played, well, I would like to, I was about to say played by Freema Adjaman, but it's not. It's Martha, you know, again, it's all read by Stephen Yates. None of the David Tennant and Freema Adjaman are not in this, but um, it's the 10th Doctor along with uh, Martha Jones as his companion um, in this story that takes place um, chronologically. Well, it obviously, in the Doctor's timeline, it takes place, obviously, it's the 10th Doctor, not the 4th Doctor, so... It takes place after that story, but time as um, the calendar goes, it takes place seventy years prior to when we see the Zygons in the Fourth Doctor series. Mm-hmm. We're not going to give anything away from you know as far as the story goes. Um, I felt, and and again, I, I have to be fair and honest here, saying that um, even though I did listen to it from beginning to end, um, my I. I I tend to, when I'm listening to audiobooks or um, radio series or whatever, I, I tend to be doing other things while listening. And um, I, I think I might have like lost track or got distracted. And um, I, I, I think maybe this deserves me listening to it again from beginning to end, paying closer attention to it because um, I'm a bit fuzzy with some scenes or, or gaps between scenes. So um, I, I'm not going to review so much of the story content itself, um, except for saying that um, it, it, it maybe because I got I, I couldn't maybe the fact that I my attention was diverted from it maybe plays a part in um, you know it, it maybe that shouldn't have been the case. <laughs> so um, um, I think I'll give it three Tardis drones out of five and um, if you really if you're a fan of the Zygon 
technical difficulties have occurred with the hosts of this podcast. Please do not adjust your broadband connection. Thank you. Now, let's rejoin our regularly scheduled podcast. Well, just to kind of echo everything that, that Lewis has said, um, I think that this, this would make a great story for kids. As a, as a Doctor Who fan myself, um, I personally didn't really think that it was that very adult. I don't think that the adult Doctor Who fans will get as much from the story as, as young, younger kids will. And I've read a lot of the um, sort of newer Doctor Who books, and this was the first one that really sort of made me realise that this was basically designed, I think, almost entirely for kids. Um, maybe that's just because of the way that Reggie narrated it. And I think that's really sort of a constraint of the fact that, as Lewis said, there's only one person reading the story. And as such, he's got to, um, in order to, to differentiate between the different characters, he has to really sort of change his voice and, and the style and things. And that to me felt like it was definitely sort of a kid's book. Um, and also, I didn't really like a lot of the accents that Reggie Yates did. I think he's got a... He is a great narrator, don't get me wrong, but he's, he does a very dire French accent, unfortunately. The story itself, um, there are a lot of twists and turns, but I think, really, there are almost too many. And it almost made me feel like the story was ending when really, you know, you know that it's not because you have to get through, you know, so many of the tracks on the disc before the story has ended. Um, there were a lot of really clever twists and turns and things that I just didn't see coming. I think that's been true of a lot of Doctor Who books, which I think in itself is quite a difficult thing to do because, you know, you know that there will be a twist here somewhere, but you don't know whether it's going to be an obvious one or a not so an obvious one, if you know what I mean. And I think they did it very well, kind of making you guess where the story was going to go and then it would completely surprise you. But for me, it just felt um, really sort of long and, and, and outdrawn and long-winded, really, I guess, than, than I would have liked. I think that this would have made a better quick-read story than uh, a really long, extrapolated novel. Um, that's just my opinion, of course. I, I don't know what other people think out there who have read the book or, or listened to the, to the audio story. But for me, it just felt too long. And for that reason, I'm very much echoing Lewis's, and I'm going to give it three TARDIS groans out of five because I thought that the only real things that let it down was just the format itself. It's the first sort of Doctor Who audiobook I've listened to in the new style, you know, adapted from a novel. And uh, also, I just thought that it, it kind of, the story was a bit long for my liking. So that's the reason why I'm giving it sort of three TARDIS groans out of five. But we will be reviewing more stories in the future. We do have uh, several more audio books to listen to. Um, I know Wood, Wooden Heart is one. Uh, what's the other, Lewis? The Last Dodo? By, um, yeah, Wooden Heart by Martin Day, which is read by Ad... Um, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing her name, um, Ajo Addo, who played uh, Francine Jones, uh, Martha Jones's mother in the Doctor Who series. And the other one upcoming, uh, which we'll review, 
is, um, and I guess since it's called The Last Dodo, we'll review this one last, is by written, is written by um, Jacqueline Rayner and it's read by none other than Freemer Adjamin, who plays Martha Jones. Mm. Yeah, so uh, we look forward to those and uh, hopefully you look forward to hearing our reviews as well. Yes, so um, thank you so much and uh, we'll be right back. The doctor's head felt like an old TV set warming up. Sound came first, an eerie pulsating thrum of energy, rhythmic and monotonous. It was a sound he recognised but couldn't place. He only knew it spelt danger. He opened his eyes and a red-orange glare burned fiercely into his senses. The prisoner is awake! The prisoner is an idiot to be suckered by the little girl distracts him while the big Zygon lamps him routine, the doctor muttered. Strong hands slipped under his arms and hauled him to his feet. He focused on the lights that were coming from somewhere inside the fibrous walls, softly growing and fading in intensity. I'm in their spaceship, he realised. The entire control room looked to have been grown rather than made. The sour tang of blood hung in the air. Though the doctor decided that by rights it should smell like an Italian restaurant. Everything seemed covered in bits of pizza and spaghetti, even the big screen on the wall that was showing Martha. The doctor shook his head and tried to clear it. He saw that Martha was standing in the sitting room of the lodge. They must have a communications link in there somewhere. She was staring into the screen imploringly, as if she could actually see him. As Igon's hand pressed against her cheek. Martha, he shouted. Doctor, her voice sounded strained. Are you okay? They both said it at once. Be silent, hissed the Zygon on the screen. I'm James Norton. My name is Ken Deep. It's Doctor, Doctor Who Podshock. Podshock. Keeping you up to date. Let's, let's move away from this train wreck and get into the news. <laughs> with star interviews. I'm very privileged to have here with me Mr. Murray Gold. <laughs> Hello, this is Professor McCoy. The latest reviews. I gave it a one because it did have originality, did change the format. And lots of fun. Hooray! Presented by Outpost Gallifrey. Fantastic. Doctor Who Podshot. But human beings are quite my favorite species. Damn it, I'm trying to do a Doctor Who podcast and you two are monkeying around. Shock. My name is Ken Deep, of course, alongside Mr. Lewis Trapani. And joining us actually uh, via Skype this evening is uh, Mr. Joshua Lou Friedman, our 
uh, shall we dub him West Coast Correspondent now, as we need somebody out on the on the left coast to keep an eye on things for us. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, I'm um I'm game. I'm here in game. You're in L.A. Yes. Town. Uh, yes. Name all the other references that you could possibly say for L.A. And oh God. Actually, you've been a <laughs> you've been a Doctor Who fan for for a long time. All my life. All my life, actually, and it was um. I'd gotten out of it for a little while. It was like right, you know, around junior high and high school, you know, um, girls. And I had gotten, <laughs> gotten out of it for a while. And then it was like my later college years that I <clears throat> never really left, but I just gotten out of my, you know, in being in touch with the fandom and what have you. And uh, a friend of mine, I turned him on to the show because he was looking for some new science fiction that I was like, what's the best stuff out there? And he had never heard of Doctor Who. So I hooked him up with it and he became very... Um, you know, he became, just like overnight, he was transformed into this fan. And I felt like I'd created a monster. The next thing, like a, two weeks later, his room was covered in posters and <laughs> what have you. So, um, and kind of through through him, I kind of re, it re-energized my love for the show. And then what happened was there was a convention, uh, the first Doctor Who LA big convention in LA was going on. I'd heard about it. And I sent him down, you know, I'm like, here you go. And here, there's a convention you can go. And and they'll have plenty of Doctor Who stuff there. And he borrowed my video camera. And this is like, you know, you know, mid-80s. Not everyone had these little small pocket cameras. It wasn't common. You know, we're talking about the big, clunky RCA cameras. And I sent him with my RCA camera down to the convention. And he'll go film it and check it out and have fun. And he came back that night because it's just down the, here. It was very close to here in Hermosa Beach where I actually live. And he showed me this tape. And there's John Pertwee running around. And, and, and there was when I first met John Levine had like, sent a message to the tape, get down here. So I said, hey, that looks like fun. I'll go check it out. So I went that next morning and met uh, John Pertwee that next morning. And I've been going to Gallifrey ever since. I've been to all 20. And it also uh, jump-started my uh, love for the show. So I've become deeper into it even when I was growing up. So Now, you, uh, we, we had a chance, Lewis and I had our, our chance to finally meet you face-to-face uh, out at Gallifrey 19. And, and, oh, yeah. And had a blast. <laughs> And uh, it was nice to see that you, you know, it was great that you, I like the way you were, you know, you've been going to all the Gallifrey, so you're kind of in tune with, oh, yeah. with, with different, we, we, there were a lot of people who we never met face to face. So unless somebody was walking around or you conspicuously stared at their name badge, it was very difficult to know, oh, that's the guy who does this. So that's the girl who wrote this or something like that. But you kind of knew everybody by face. And that was a, that was a big help when we, when we were out Oh there. yeah. I didn't even realize that. I guess it's just by uh, through. I mean, that's a natural instinct because these are a lot of my you know same time next year friends. You know, I've, I mean, Sean Lyon and I became friends right off the bat, and uh, yeah, I've had a lot of spent a lot of great times, a lot of great years there. And I, no matter how busy I am in my you know my regular you know day to day work and, and life and what have you, always every year I make it a point, you know, to make sure I'm there. And it's been kind of a yeah, it's kind of like a little vacation for me too. When on some years where I don't get to go anywhere, I'm like, okay, well, this at least I have Gallifrey. So, what was you, special uh, about Gallifrey was that you know Ken and I was our first time you know at the convention ourselves, and uh, it was instant family for everyone there. That the, everyone welcomed us, and we just really felt at home. And uh, and thank you, Josh, as well, because you really played a big part in that as well. So, um, hats off to you and and everyone you know involved. You know, well as you said. Um, you know, you go back to Gallifrey every year to get reacquainted with the friends that you have there, and it just seems like a whole family reunion almost. But it's not clickish. It's um, they they they're very welcoming, and and um, and that's good to see. 
Oh, very much so. Very much so. And we were happy to have you. I think I even mentioned because I had been listening to Podshock for like over a little over a year now, but kind of, you know, very religiously. And yeah. to have you guys there, I think I had mentioned this to uh, Ken or you, Lewis, or both of you at one point that I was uh, I was actually of all the guests there who I'd all met before in various capacities. And, you know, obviously one of them was a friend. Uh, I was the most starstruck well, to have you guys hanging around, <laughs> which is a little—it's a little disconcerting because the word "star" and Lewis or myself are usually not joined in any way. I, it's, it's one, it was one of those not things. Unless, I was like, I was like, oh, unless, Sylvester. Yeah, "star" like, is an acronym for some sort of government watch list. You know what I mean? That's the only time we're really on. But but no, I mean it was it was great. It was great to meet so many people, and it was great that. Uh, you know, like you tuned us in on, on some of the things to check out uh, over the course of the weekend. And and of course, you had a nice, you know, party going on on Saturday night. I, I now know to get a poolside room. Yeah, I'm, known, I'm more known for that. I mean, I'll do my, you know, the occasional <laughs> panels, but I'm the guy that, you know, you'll come see on, you know, at the night, all the nightlife. The Gallifrey nightlife is usually uh, where you'll find me. Uh, got my well, finger you, on the pulse, so to speak. It's not a secret that, that you work. Uh, in the the television and movie business, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But you, did you go to school for that? No, I fell into it. I, I always had a love for film and television. Always wanted to get into it, and it was. Uh, I finally got a. It was like right toward the end of college. I got an opportunity to kind of drop what I was doing and work for a uh, start with a company called Deke, which is children's animation. You know, like Inspector Gadget and mm-hmm. GI Joe, and started out as a copy boy there, and it just kind of snowballed. You know, but I was stuck in animation for a while, and I finally broke into live action and movies, and now it's been kind of a long, a long ride. Did, it's been a long ride. Was Doctor Who an influence on you? Certainly so. Certainly so. Especially, um, not just the you know, growing up with this show. I mean, every you know, half the literature I was reading were you know, you know, target novelizations. You know, I had them all. Um, I would almost say that Terrence Dix was very formative in my, you know, right. And I became a writer and I, all that, my writing, a lot of that was influenced by Terrence. And in fact, the first book I had published, I wanted him to autograph it because, you know, he had been such an influence <laughs> when I first met him at a Gallifrey. And uh, I'm not sure if he was drinking or whatnot, but he, uh, he was talking to me. He was very nice and he autographed my, the first book I published and he got my name wrong. <laughs> so I was, well, that was, I like was a, like, wow, like just, a good luck charm. It was. It was like weird. He was like, "Oh, all the best. Continue on with the doing. Appreciate the kudos. Uh, g- good luck and everything, Michael. Enjoy yourself, Terrence Sticks." And I was like, I'm, "Who's Michael?" Okay. Well, thank you, sir. You know, he's a nice guy. Uh, but yeah, so I do, I do work in a lot of films and television. That's kind of my bread and butter. And um, and you know, the weekend job too. But there are, you know, there are Doctor Who fans everywhere. We're all out there. It's just I uh, finally got involved with Pod- Podshock. I mean, I've been listening too long. Well, what happened was all these like snotty kids who were in elementary school or junior high school or high school that were Doctor Who fans in the 80s from the PBS days. And now all these like grown adults who have all decided to have careers or go and do things and get their acts together. Now, all of a sudden, we're all, you know, it's a whole different scene. The current series, the production team of the current series is probably made up of mostly of people that grew up watching it as fans of uh, the original series. Yeah, and it's, it, that's great, and God bless. I mean, that's these are the people that should be uh, running it, calling the shots, and they're, they're passionate about it, and mm-hmm. they really know what they're doing over there. They just really, I yeah. I don't think I ever mentioned it on on a podcast, but I know I've mentioned it uh, either at one of the pal- panels at Gallifrey or 
uh, perhaps when we were at, at Icon last year or whatever. But um, Doctor Who is like a big influence on on me going to school for television and 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 broadcasting. And it was like the idea that you could make a show for you know well over there would be a couple thousand pounds if you look at you know the black and white days. But the idea that you could that people would get together with with basically just a, a an empty studio, you know, some cameras, some lights, and some other stuff, and say, how can we make this into a science fiction show? And that was so inspiring to me. I'm like, you know, big budget movies, they're they're great because obviously you're gonna you're gonna make something that's very believable. But it, I think it's such an incredible challenge when you have hardly any resources, and you say, how do we get people to believe what we're about to dole out on them? And well, uh, you know. Not only that, I agree with that 100%. And another thing that moved me on along those same lines is not, not only they were, they were limited in what they could do with their budget, but with the writing and the ambition of the stories, were never, they never limited those. They never kind of curtailed Yeah, they never that. compromised that, right? Never compromised. Yeah, you know, we need a giant we, dinosaur. We're going to get a giant dinosaur. That's exactly. It. And, you know, and the writing was very intelligent. So, I mean... In a way, you know, it was more of an attestment to the imagination of the writers and the resources, yeah, of the production team. But they never, they never chinced on what they were shooting for, no matter what their budget was. It seemed like, I mean, look at the pirate planet, you know. I mean, that's quite a story to try <laughs> to realize yeah. with the limited funds they have. And wow, they, you know. And yeah, sometimes the effects don't look so great, but, you know, a lot of people say that adds to the charm. And, and it does. But the, the stories themselves and the, the ideas and the concepts, they never chinced on those. They never limited themselves there, so... Yeah, the stories and characters are always the star of the series, I always felt, you know, where, you know, you can patch in um, spotty special effects or sets, whatever. That's, I mean, if you ever listen to any radio dramas and you can, or, or books or whatever, you can fill that into your imagination, but it's, it's really a, a series about uh, great storytelling and great characters. Well, to You're me, here. The, 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 uh, the limited special effects or the limited sets... Uh, were, were more was like listening to a radio show or reading a book, yeah. Uh, but I looked at the visuals as just being a um, a guide or a blueprint. Mm-hmm. Like you fill in the rest. Yeah, <laughs> it, needs, it needs to look like a sophisticated futuristic building, and this mm-hmm. is sort of what it looks like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Also, another way to look at it is if you're watching uh, a theater. You know, this is hey, this is they just videotape this great play and. And that's, you know, you're, that's the kind of thing you're going to come to expect from a stage production, isn't it? You, know, you can look at well, it that way, too. of stage productions, you had the opportunity, and this is the reason why we wanted to have you on the show. You had an, mm-hmm. the opportunity last week to see a one-man Sylvester McCoy show. Yes. What's, what's the de- First, give everybody the background on how Sylvester McCoy was in L.A., what, you know, what, you know, what was the scoop. He, he was obviously there for Gallifrey. Then what? He went on the, the cruise, right, the Doctor Who cruise? Yeah, he did the sea cruise. Um, well, it, it actually it goes back a bit with the last time Sylvester was here. Um, we, we became friendly at the convention. And um, after the convention was over, I lived very close to where the convention was, and I was on the Hermosa Beach. You know, these are the California, the Southern California beaches. Uh, you know, the, the the typical the girls and the sand and the surf. He was looking for that kind of thing for the few days he was out after the convention. So he was um, he was intimating that yeah, I would love to come down to Hermosa for a few days, and then I was like, well, cool, I'll show you around, of course. And I'm kind of biting my tongue. This is, the character is like my childhood hero, and he wants to come down to my hometown. But the, the, cra- the craziest thing after that was then he, he bugged me later on the convention. I was wondering, 
you know, recommend the hotel and, uh, oh, and do you think I can get a ride from you? And can, would you take, like, just physically take me? So it was weird. It was, the, the convention ended and we had breakfast the, mor- the morning before we left. We, we get in my car and we're driving home from the convention. This is a little, really very awkward experience. This is like going to a Star Trek convention and leaving with Captain Kirk. Uh, you know, very creepy and very, but we got along, we hit it off great. Three days of just fun and show. I mean, we just, it, it was amazing. I mean, we did everything. And a lot of my friends came down and he had a great time and met some friends and loved Hermosa Beach. So, uh, and we've kept in touch and um, he's a really good guy. And then, because I was working for Bill Baggs as well when he, I was running his booth with him out here. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'd keep in touch with him through Bill. We'd, like, send messages to each other. Either way. And it had been a few years. We'd say we'll see each other next time he comes out to, uh, to Gallifrey. And apparently he'd been out before this Gallifrey and he, um, to when he was touring with King Lear, with Ian McKellen for the Royal RSC. And he came back to Hermosa looking for me, but I was, I guess, uh, <laughs> he went to the right bars, but he didn't ask the right people. <laughs> I was uh, busy uh, working, working at the time. He was looking for me. So uh, it was a nice reunion uh, this past Gallifrey. We, you know, knew we'd see each other and, uh, and get together after the, after the convention ended. Sadly, uh, you know, because he, he, he was here for a month, basically. He did the convention, he did the sea cruise, and then... He and his son were going to stay in Santa Monica and just, you know, take in California. And they had planned to maybe come to Hermosa as well, but sadly after the convention, you know, the strike was over and I had to go back to work. And very, very busy. And finally, when I, toward the end, when there was a, a window where I was able to get together with him, it was around the time he was talked into, it was two nights before we had planned on getting together. Hey, that Sunday, the local theater group decided... Uh, it's run by Pamela Salem, a local theater group here in L.A., and Pamela Salem is a Doctor Who actress that I admired back from the day. She, was, uh, she played Commander Toos in, mm-hmm. in Robots of Death, and she uh, starred as Pamela in Resurrection of the Daleks with Sylvester. So they've they were, you know, been like a life, you know, well, not lifelong, but uh, since then acquaintances. So she was basically wanted to get him in to do a one-man show at the Matrix Theater on Melrose here in Los Angeles. And um, so, yeah, I get this phone call from Sylvester telling me about it. Like, uh, I'm like, hey, they're make, you know, they've asked me to do this thing. And uh, why don't you come down and see the show? Then afterwards we'll go out and drinks and then we'll catch up and all that kind of thing. So it, it, it just came out of the blue. So, you know, I got a couple of friends and we went and checked it out. And it was... Uh, it really, surpri- it was just surprising that here he was, here in L.A. doing, you know, doing just, you know, the- you're not, I mean, we're not used to this kind of thing. We don't have Doctor Who actors, certainly not people playing the Doctor come out and do like, hey, an evening, you know, a nice evening where you come in and you, you they serve you wine before the show and you sit down wow. with them. And it, so I was really excited that he invited me to this. So, yeah, a friend and I went down. And we, there was other people there I knew. Uh, Jeff, I got a shout out to Jeff Gould out there. He's uh, he's been very good about. Uh, he took pictures and whatnot. We'll get those to you guys for any kind of enhanced uh, podcast. But it's really strange. We get there to LA, and, and in front it's a very small theater. It seats about a hundred, and they were I guess they were hoping to get more people there. But um, Sylvester invited some friends, only friends of his he knew. So uh, there, it ended up being about ten to fifteen of us there in the theater. Very small venue. Um, and the set, he, the set was pre-existing for the troops, I guess, for the different uh, perform, uh, the different plays they put on. In this case, it was a set for a play, I believe, called Poor Beast in the Rain. Very, it was like a nice living room pub, pub set, so it was perfect for him to kind of 
interact with. And um, yeah, Pamela Salem was, you know, introduced the show. I was just stoked that she was there. Oh my wow, God, I yeah. love Pamela Salem. You know, I didn't even know she was in L.A. So uh, she lives um, in L.A. Lives in L.A. and runs the. Uh, it's either not the theater itself, but the uh, the actors troupe that performs mm-hmm. at the theater regularly. Wow. So that was like, wow, I'm meeting like two doctors. I mean, I mean, I've already, Sylvester and I have always, we already know each other. We're already friends, but um, I get to meet Pamela Salem. And then when Sylvester's son, Sam, who I became friendly with this last convention, uh, ran up to me, he was with um, two, there was two other actors who were with uh, Sylvester and King Lear. And then he introduced me to this couple and the couple was um, Daphne Ashbrook and her boyfriend. So that was an Another big surprise. Oh my God! That's you know. Uh, Daphne was at Gallifrey. I've never actually met, had met Gallifrey before. Uh, Daphne before, uh, and I knew she was at Gallifrey. Just didn't. Our circles never crossed. And here we are. She's like, Oh my God! I've heard so much about you. And I'm like, What? This is really strange. I've heard, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is very bizarre. Well, no, she's a wonderful lady. Her that that morning, I think. Yeah, that we found. I when we, that, I found out at dinner after the show. We'll get back to the show in a minute. But yeah, after. Um, when we all went out to dinner after the show, that was one of the things that came up when we were at the table. Because um, I think one of you had told me that you would interview Daphne. I just wasn't, uh, I wasn't aware that it was that very, that I very did. afternoon you had done it. And here we are having dinner, and I, and I mentioned, oh, I heard you were interviewed by, uh, you know, Ken and Lewis. I love those Ponchon guys; are great. And she was like, "That was this afternoon. They're amazing. Oh my God, how do you know them?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Oh, this is just too weird. What a small world." So I ran out. That's when I think I called you, Lewis. I'm like, "You're yes. not going to believe this." So anyway, I, I, got a, I got a text message from Lewis saying that you were at dinner with Sylvester and Daphne Ashbrook, and, and we, were, yeah. we were blown away because we it was like, well, we spoke to her during the day on on the show, and it was all, it yeah. was just, it's amazing because you know, as Doctor Who fans, we always think of anything connected with Doctor Who being over there, and uh-huh. and here, and here we are, you know, yeah, here are. Sylvester McCoy and Daphne Ashbrook, and now you tell me pa- Pamela Salem. They were here in the States, and, and for you, in your, literally in your backyard. Yeah, that was, that was very bizarre, actually. Um, I, so, yeah, the, uh, the show was great. I mean, I mean back to the, the show itself. I mean, it was basically, if, I don't know, there was a, uh, David Banks, who pl- I guess played the cyber leader in, in mm-hmm. a lot of the You used to, like, have an audio series that he'd interviewed different actors from Doctor Who. And one of them was called The Real McCoy, where he interviewed Sylvester, and Sylvester talked about his life. This show, this one-man show, was named, dubbed The, the Real McCoy, which is the same, uh, it's the same name of that interview that he did with David Banks. And it, it covered the same material, actually. If, if you, I don't know if you've ever heard that interview. It's kind of, you know, it's something you buy, you know. It's, it's one of those package things. But um, mm-hmm. it covered the same material, it was, it, but it was great. I mean, it's his life from childhood to now. And um, he brushed upon many subjects. I mean, well, of course, he's doing it with the Sylvester. It's, it's still a one-man show, so it's kind of chock full of sketches and anecdotes and his humorous, you know. He does, he, of course, by the end of the show, he was playing the spoons off of the entire audience. He does that at the convention <laughs> as well. Uh, he, but he first came out, um, was you know, just started off with his childhood and, you know, how his real names are, you know, it's a kind of a... It's comp- many names compounded. One of them is is Percy, uh, which he didn't like to go by because his hometown Danoon was historically invaded by the Percys. So that name kind of, you know, it wasn't a good name to have. So they it ended up changing it through many incarnations. It finally became Sylvester McCoy, and then he went on to talk about 
uh, you know, how he was going to become, an, like, he, he you know he was going to be a minister. He, was, he actually had went to, uh, he went to become a monk, and he went through the schooling and whatnot, and actually thought he was going to go and uh, go as far as to become, a, was, he was going to be a priest, and he was going to go as far as to become a monk. And uh, he discovered girls, and that changed everything. <laughs> he said he ended up worrying he was going to be praying to the cloth, but he ended up chasing skirt instead. So from there, Tom he went Baker, on. I think Tom Baker was in a seminary or something, wasn't he? Didn't he? He wanted to I be think, a yeah, briefly, he, uh, I think I've heard something to that effect as well. Mm. Then um, uh, what, of interest to me is he went on to do the talk about the days with uh, the Ken Campbell Roadshow. You guys have seen the Secret Policeman's Other Ball, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and you'll so you know Sylvester has that thing where he come, he's you know with David Rappaport and Ken Campbell. And that was that was the troupe he was with. And they did sketches and and traveled, and he actually performed a few of those sketches. And uh, not the one where he nails the nail into his head, but uh, that's <laughs> actually on the Secret Policeman's Other Ball. But he talked about that a lot. And, and then I kind of went on through his life and acting, you know, pitfalls and and triumphs and. The, and jokes, of course, are, everything, was, everything was bookended. Every subject was bookended by a joke or a sketch. Mm-hmm. And it's very funny stuff. And then, yeah, he, he very touched briefly about Doctor Who. He actually talked more about acting with Laurence Olivier in Dracula, the John Badham film. Wow. And that all came about and how Laurence, uh, you know, would literally kind of insist on blowing all of, you know, hogging all of Sylvester's spotlight, <laughs> which... Uh, which uh, I guess Laurence Olivier was uh, prone to do at that time. And, um, yeah, it was just a great show. The, uh, the, uh, the, he, just watching him perform, though, you know, his mannerisms and, of course, just the, why, the same way how he, the same magic he's kind of installed in the character of the Doctor as well. It's just all apparent in everything he does. How long was the show? About an hour and 15 minutes. And he just went on and on. And, and you know, you were gripped the whole time. You never felt like, okay, is this, you know, we can listen to him talk for an hour. Is this going to drag or whatnot? It, it, it went by so fast because you're like hanging on every word and he's got you, you know, he knows how to mm-hmm. work the crowd. So and, yeah, go ahead. As someone who actually, you know, can appreciate some of the things from within the business, was there anything mm-hmm. you took away from it where you, you know, again, he tells about the trials and tribulations of an actor, a jobbing actor. Um, as someone who's you know involved in in day to day production of shows and movies, what what did you take away from it? Uh, to be honest with you, I took away from more of my respect for actors who stick with it and never, you know, never kind of so much more live in the past, but they respect their past and embrace what they have now, and 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 never, you know, no, he's never trying to live up to his doctor days. He appreciates them, or he never is trying to. You know, he's, he looks back at these experiences as like, wow, these are what maybe I'm today, and I love what I do today. And you know, he just toured with the RSC, and I I work with a lot of actors who, well, let's say, <laughs> you know, who don't. They they had that one part, and now they're like, say, they're stuck doing these low budget films, and they just kind of they they they, they kind of hold on to that old. You know, they're doing. VH1 reality shows about it, or they're doing that and everything. And and Sylvester's not that guy. And I just yeah. it's it's just refreshing actually because um you know I don't see it. I mean I I yeah I see it from time to time, but it's very rare you see somebody who just really has it together and has no illusions about who they were and who they are now. And are, are they're great with it. They're awesome. I mean he's a you know he's an incredible performer. That's awesome. So, it really sounds like like a hell of a show, and especially to be in like such an intimate 
setting. Yeah, was, I know we he did a yeah. cabaret uh, at Icon way back, maybe about 1990 or 1991, and he only came in for one segment. You know, it was a back in the John Pertwee days. John Pertwee could do the entire cabaret as a one man show, and I'm sure Sylvester could as well. But it was you know, a few other actors were there, and there were some some skits done by some of the fans. But when he came aboard, and he just all he has to do is pull out one joke or one trick. And it's usually a home run, you know, he just goes and does it and everybody's left, you know, rolling in the aisles and he just packs up and moves on to the next part of the convention. Oh, he's great. Yeah. One of the things he did, he had, he'd pulled out for the audience, one of the audience interactive moments of the show. He pulled, I pulled out of his pocket, a, a uncut, I'm sorry, an, a packaged packet of sausages. And he, he came up to uh, he came it's up to funny, my friend and I. Funny concept right off the bat. Right off the bat, and he he opens them up, and he comes up to my friend and I. We're in the front row, and he's like, "Okay, go ahead and shuffle the sausages. Okay, now split <laughs> split the split the deck of sausages. There we go. Now, like, ma'am, I want you to think. Then we like go to the you know think to the woman in the back or to the woman in the back. Okay, I want you to think of one of these sausages. Now think hard in your head." And then, like, you've got it in your head, and then he'd pull out one sauce after, is it this one? No, and throw it into, the, you know, without looking, throw it anywhere the audience, pegging anyone in the head. Or the, <laughs> so until he went through the whole pack, and then finally, this must be your sausage. So what you're and, saying, that live on stage, Sylvester McCoy, you know, opened his pants and whipped out his sausages? I can go ahead and say that. Well, he whipped it from his coat. Yes, he did. He did. <laughs> I, you know, I was waiting for the, 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 uh, the traditional Lewis pun to come in there somewhere. I was waiting. Yeah, I couldn't let you I, down. I, you yeah. did not let me down. I'm like, I wonder if Lewis is going to pull one of those classic puns out. And uh, Maybe Kenny I, will you, go you, off on a tangent soon. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. No, I love it. No, so yeah, it was again. It was a great evening, and uh, I will ho- I will forward you some more pictures. Another thing that was interesting too. They're trying to. They realized they're you know I guess they they only had a couple of days to get some word out. Why they didn't do go through like um, you know Alpo's Gallifrey, where there's a lot of you know LA fans, or I'm sure would have you know flocked to it. Um, they <laughs> the last minute and they realized there weren't going to be that much many people showing up. They had one of these. Uh, on right there on the sidewalk on Melrose, they put together this like little you know foam core sign with uh, a picture like one of Sylvester's you know headshots on it with in Sharpie written "Come see one man show, uh, ten bucks to get in." Just trying to attract passersby, it was just so haphazardly done with the Sharpie just sitting out there on the street, and it was weird to see all these just passersby like kind of not even noticing or you know <laughs> taking notice or whatnot, thinking God. You know, <laughs> that's very strange. I mean, it's like if I just had been walking by and saw that, I would have freaked out, you know. But, again, uh, it was so last minute. So there's, we got pictures of that, too. It was, it was a lot of fun, though. I mean, it was just a great show, and obviously it was great for Sylvester and I to finally get back together and, you know, and, and spend some time. And, I mean, well, one of the things that we liked, um, you know, that we did uh, for the, this past Gallifrey was we had a, a sort of a preview to the Gallifrey conventions, and apparently it was very well received. Some of the people who were first timers to Gallifrey found it very helpful. So for the twentieth anniversary, uh, the twentieth Gallifrey coming up uh, in two thousand nine, we'd like to have you, being a twenty year veteran of of uh, Gallifrey, to be able to give us a little bit of a you know an insider's uh, uh, peek at to what to look for. Uh, Mike from uh, from Canada gave us Mike, one yeah, as Mike well. Grant, sure, yeah. So. Um, you know, it's always good to get different perspectives. 
Yeah, you being a uh, you know a person tapped in on uh, L.A. nightlife might be able to clue the listeners in on. Uh, I, yeah, I was gonna say it's kind of like how we handle Daphne. Um, you guys have you know you got the day shift and uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, the, the night I shift. The night, night shift. shift. Okay, is it is it time to order the boot? Okay, let's um, let's get yeah. this party started. Uh, you know, the, the, the bar is open. You know, the bar is always open. The neon light crackles on, and you know. Yeah. And speaking of bar, I will get a Ponchock shirt up at the other the weekend job. So I'm uh, that's another that's another goal of mine. I'm like, you know what? You know, people sending you know themselves wearing a Ponchock shirt. I'll make sure uh, we get a shot of the Ponchock with some Playboy bunnies from the mansion with it. I got to make that happen somehow. So the guy has probably he has two of the most envious jobs in the world. I think what most people would admit he he gets to work in Hollywood. And then his night job is bartending at the Playboy Mansion. Yeah, nights first, and weekends and parties, yeah. Which is, by the way, an inspiration for Doctor Who and sci-fi fans everywhere. <laughs> hey, we're everywhere, though. I mean, it's, we're, <laughs> you know, that's all I have to say. We are definitely everywhere. So, um, Well, first off, thanks so much for, for joining us tonight and giving us the report well, my, on Sylvester's show. And my pleasure. I wish there was more, you know, more to, uh, more to uh, you know, but it was just, it was a very simple quaint show and um so not much more to report from just how it went down but it was a uh, it was great it was like a, a very it's a very special unique uh unique experience so yes well, very anytime much so. something's going on in la and you're you're a guy who's tapped in out there you know oh yeah always welcome to report you're now our, our west coast correspondent as, we, hey, as you join a, no. an elite group of reporters from around the world oh i love it thank you guys very much for having me and i will yeah i'll continue to keep my finger Gosh. on the pulse the downside yeah. is that when you're stuck in traffic, you're going to be stuck listening to yourself now. I know. <laughs> Have you told people that? Because I think it's true. It's it's so true. That, well, you were uh, the first person to say it, but you were the first of I would say maybe three or four people who came up to us at Gallifrey and said, "You know, your podcast gets me through a, a long commute home. It gets me through traffic. It gets me through a you know train ride. You know, back to my my house and." And you have you have no idea. That's why I think I was so I mean just so enamored with Podshock and meeting with guys is because I spend so much time listening <laughs> in L.A. traffic, you know, and spending time listening to your guys' voices. That's a lot of time, you know. Before podcasts and whatnot, in order to get you know to get through L.A. traffic, you know, my secret and probably many more many more people have this secret is were audio novels. Yeah, you know, but in L.A. traffic, you're knocking out two or three novels a day. We're talking light, <laughs> light, re light reading too, like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. You know, so no, but um, yeah. So I have to thank you guys immensely, and I'm sure others have. I speak for those who uh, deal with L.A. traffic. You really do get us through it. So make the shows longer because <laughs> we re-listen <laughs> to them <laughs> just to get through. Yeah, I, I went to L.A. thinking that I was going to get uh, go to a lot of places that first day, and it, with L.A. traffic, it wasn't happening. So next time around, I'll know better. And by the way, next time around, it's about 334 more days as we record this. So, um, you know, start uh, making plans for Gallifrey 20. And, uh, oh, yeah. Um, uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day, I believe yeah. it begins on a Friday. That's a Friday in, of uh, 2009. Oh, by we all had such means. a great time. I remember saying to Joshua when we were leaving, dude, I'll see you in 363 days. <laughs> we will count down the days already. We had just a it, blast. It was a good time. Oh, and I just got in pictures from that one party we were all at together. So, uh, oh, I'm sorry. It's the one in my room. There's a surprise. But uh, I've got some pictures. I'll email those to you guys uh, 
I'll email those to you guys uh, later in the week, okay? One of many parties that evening, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. I, it was we were wandering a bit, weren't we? Well, they, a lot goes on. I mean, Gallifrey is known for its, you know, they have great part. I mean, on my room is just a given, but they have these great theme parties, like you know the. I was gonna guys, say the theme parties were incredible. Oh God, these guys, Kevin and Andy, throw an evil genius party every Friday night, and then you know Mervin, his. I don't know if you met Mervin, his wife, in the same room had the other party the following night, the Daleks and Manhattan party. That yeah. was awesome. And the 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 you know the care and the. You know, the enthusiasm the planning, that goes into yeah. It's just amazing. And these are, yeah, this is why. This is why you have the same time next year, friends, Eric Galifrey. These people are great. And Sean and everyone, who, all the volunteers, everyone who runs the convention. It's just awesome. Very much looking forward to Gallifrey 20. I mean, we're, yeah. yeah. And, and I, the I, difference I, now is that, uh, again, I mentioned earlier, we're all older, working people, stuff like that. You know, when we were kids, you had to scrape up a couple bucks just to get in the door. Now, yeah, you, can, you take the time, you plan your vacation, you make a family thing out of it if that's your thing, or, or you mm -hmm. know, you, you go and, and it's, it's something you look forward to. You do the same thing, like your same time every year thing with, with Same Galifrey. time every year, and I do plan it like a vacation. I'm like, I'll, and I make sure work-wise I'm covered and that I've, like, yeah. saved up enough cash so I can, you know, enjoy it comfortably, and I, but I, it really goes a, a lot into it, a lot of planning and a lot of anticipation. I so. mean, really, it, it's just the the basement of a hotel. You know what I mean? But oh, true. That, but but it's it's what it's, it's what you do with that basement. <laughs> it's like um, it's it's the people you put in there. You know, it's like a nightclub. You could have a nightclub with a hundred people. If there's a hundred people who don't want to be there, it's just a cattle pen. But if you have a nightclub with a hundred people who are all looking to party, it's a whole different story. I agree. So if yeah. you have a convention that's filled with people who are all there for mutual interest and all mm -hmm. there to share good feelings and fun, mm -hmm. then there you go. You know, it doesn't ha it's not about the size of the convention. I went and I, and I mentioned this before. I went to the Star Wars celebrations, and I'm a huge Star Wars fan. But mm -hmm. thirty thousand people, I'd rather have a thousand people having a good time than thirty thousand people just being pumped through the door. And, and I agree with that. Yeah. I just uh, I was a little let Comic down by that aspect. Yeah, yeah. Comic Con unfortunately can be like that. I mean, it's the as same well. thing. I mean, I've I've never been to uh, Comic Con, but I see the pictures of it, and I'm like, I it's, it looks amazing because they get such big name, heavy hitting studios and guests and things like that. But at the same time, are you just a face in the crowd? Yeah, it, you are. I mean, it, it, it's both. It is amazing. And it's like, wow. And the size and the money put, that's put into it is amazing. But yeah, it's not like a Gallifrey convention where you, you know, where it's more intimate and the guests talk to everybody or have drinks with everybody and you sit down and have conversation with everybody. Are um, you not just celebrity guests. I'm talking about all of the, you know, all of the, all of the uh, writers and the guest stars and the people behind the scenes. I mean, everyone is just so open to each other. So are you going to Comic-Con this year? Uh, you know, I've been twice, and usually it falls around the time where I'm busy. So it's like I made it one year. I, I only discovered Comic Con a few years ago, and now as a you know, as someone who works in movies, I almost really need to attend because a lot of the, like some films I've worked on now two years in a row have had panels, and these are great friends of mine who are we've all put a lot of hard work into these movies, and I really kind of want to be there to keep my finger on the pulse for audience reactions and, and what people are anticipating. But again, Comic-Con, you're right. It's very, you know, it, you're, you are a face in the crowd. 
And, well, if you uh, do wind up going, I hope you'll you'll give us a report from them. Oh my God, of course, I, I would love to. I'm going to try to go for sure this year. Um, again, it's get, when I get get closer to Comic Con and my schedule, I'll see uh, see if I could swing it. Comic Con is great though, but um, again, it's not like these these cons where you get the more intimate setting and yeah, uh, you know, my, at the same time next year, friends once again. So, well, again, great, Josh, guys, thanks so much. For, for joining thank, us thank on the podcast you. today. We'll be back with more Doctor Who Podshock right after this. that's going to bring to a close this episode of Doctor Who Podshock. I would like to thank Andrew Cartmel as well as Joshua Lou Friedman for being guests on this episode. And of course, my partners in crime and co-hosts, Mr. Ken Deep and James Norton for being on the show. And um, of course, yourself, listeners like yourself, our fellow ambassadors of the Gallifreyan Embassy, Thank you for continuing to be subscribers to Doctor Who Podshock. We appreciate your support, as always. And we'll have... This is just a, a continuation of our coverage of Gallifrey 2008, Gallifrey 19. We have more on deck on future episodes of Doctor Who Podshock, so expect more on that. Plus, more previews of what to expect at Gallifrey 2009. And as I said, that's coming up in February of 2009. I believe it's uh, that uh, Valentine's weekend. So Valentine's Day weekend, that is. So uh, start making plans now. Start booking your flights and hotel rooms and buying tickets. It's going to be an exciting event. It's their, it's the 20th Gallifrey Convention in Los Angeles. And speaking of conventions, while this is not a science fiction convention per se, the as I record this, next week is the New Media, the New Media Expo. And I'll be taking part in that. The New Media Expo, as the name applies, is a an event where new media producers and podcasters from all over the country and beyond come together as in this annual event to network. And there are sessions there and um, there are various different companies represented there. It's an exciting event. It's uh, it's actually my first opportunity to attend this New Media Expo. Uh, work commitments in the past had prevented me from going in the past, so I'm very excited to be there. And um, I'll be very excited to meet you if you're listening to this and you're going to be at the New Media Expo next week. Please make yourselves known. I'll be. Um, you can contact me through Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at my while I'm there. Uh, at the expo via Twitter. You can follow me by going to twitter.com slash Lewis Trapani and follow me. And once once you do that, you'll get reports on what's going on. I'll probably be doing some podcasting at the media at the New Media Expo. And um there may be some Doctor Who related material. <laughs> I don't know what we'll you know, it's we'll we'll see what happens. It's gonna be an exciting time, so I'm very much looking forward to it. And again, if you're gonna be there, please make yourselves known. Uh you know, there are gonna be various meetups and whatnot there, so it's um it should be fun. 
Also, please stay on top of everything by visiting our website at thegallifreyandembassy.org or podshock.net. Both addresses will get you to the same place. There's lots of activities and forums that are going on on our website, and we'll keep you posted on various different um, news about not only the podcast, but Doctor Who and other exciting um, stuff that that may be of interest to you, be it um, relating to the Gallifreyan Embassy. Uh, We just recently did a meetup with Doctor Who New York. It was very good. We had a great time. Um, There's pictures and discussions about it on our website, and uh, we may be planning other meetups and other events with Doctor Who New York and as well as um, any other uh, Doctor Who fan organizations. So in between podcasts, you're encouraged to go to our website, gallifreyandembassy.org or podchock.net and um, and check us out. Anyway, we're going to close out the show. Once again, thank you for subscribing. We'll be back next time with more Doctor Who material. Take care, be well, and cheers. Listening to Doctor Who Podshock by the fan run GallifreyandEmbassy.org and presented by Outpost Gallifrey at Gallifrey1.com. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Come back next week for another exciting and informative episode of Doctor Who Podshock. You can email us at feedback at podshock.net. Opening theme by Jeff Smith at thejeffsmith.com. Doctor Who Pachak is brought to you by the Gallifreyan Embassy and has been made possible through the generosity of listeners like you. Thank you for your continued donations. Your pardon. I need ginger beer! The gentleman's gone mad!